Welcome to the Road to Life Church podcast. Here with our pastor, Micah Shepline, you will be inspired through the Word of God. For more information, please visit roadtolifechurch.com. So anyway, I want to talk um, today, uh, and I guess I'm calling it a first words, first, last, and most important words. Now, the reason I'm calling it this is because I feel like a lot of the times, this is kind of how we measure our relationships with people. This is how we kind of remember people, maybe those who have come, those who have gone, or maybe those who have played an influential role in our lives, is we remember the first words they said to us, maybe the last words or the last conversation we had, and the most important things that they truly communicated with us. And what I mean by that is I think a lot of the times um, we're not just talking about people. I, I don't want to be super um, somber or, or sad, not just people who aren't with us anymore. I've, I've had a few friends as well as family members who've gone home uh, to be with the Lord that I, don't, that I remember very fondly. But also those who maybe we just had um, shorter interactions with or whatever. We remember the first time. We remember the last time. And a lot of the times we remember the gist of their life or what we would classify as the most important theme of their life. And really the reason I'm talking about this is because in, G, in the Bible, there's a, that's, sometimes I think we forget Jesus' first words, his last words, and his most important words. Now, many of you guys can probably sit here and be like, well, I know what his first words were. I know what his last words were. And I know, well, then good for you. I mean, you are super saved. Gold stars. Right, But for some of us, maybe we thought we knew what the first words were, and I'm going to kind of maybe enlighten us to what those were, or maybe we thought we knew what the last words were, and I'm going to enlighten you to those. But I think a lot, the core element is this. I think sometimes over the course of following Jesus and this pursuit of being a Christian or a believer or a disciple or whatever it is you want to call it, it's just so easy to kind of get in tune the first couple years of like, I'm going to do what the Bible says, I'm going to. Dot the T's and cross the I's. I'm going to follow. I'm going to be committed. I'm going to. But then over the course, right, it's just easy to start almost cherry picking the things we want and really practicing those. But as far as actually turning weaknesses into strengths, as far as actually being planted or committed or, or stretching our capacity or our comfort level or even actually exercising faith. It's just hard to almost step into that reality of following God. And I think that's why it's so important for us today to talk about his first, his last, and his self-proclaimed most important. Because for a lot of us, I think that these are going to challenge us. Because if we're going to measure humanity by this, remembering their first, last, and most important, I think it's imperative that we also look at that lens with Jesus. So with that, um, I failed my first driver's test. Now, some of you guys are like, wow, that is so random. Yeah, it is. Uh, but, I mean, it sticks with me to this day. What I mean by this is uh, I had saved up uh, growing up. I, I was a decent steward, as the Bible would say. And uh, I had saved up. When I turned 16, I had, like, in between fifteen dollars and $1,700 and so my parents had made a deal with us that they would match half of, or they would match whatever we raised. So you do the math, 1,500 to 1,700, that's 3,400, which meant I could get a Lamborghini. I remember I'm online like late at night. I'm like, okay, I like that Jeep Wrangler with the big tires. I'm like, I can't even hit a down payment, right? I'm like, okay, let me look at an old Corvette, right? 
winter time, right? And my parents are just like, absolutely not. Anyway, so I remember I'd saved up. So here's the thing. When you turn 15 to 16 and you're going to get that license, it is 100%. William Wallace, Braveheart, freedom! I'm free. Everything is complete. All the world is fine because I, at any time, and here's the fun thing, I couldn't at any time because believe me, my mom was on me. Still is. Anyway, um, but here's the deal. I remember I, I'm like saved up. I got everything lined up for a car, right? How many of you guys are probably wondering what my first car was? It was a Corvette. Just kidding. It was a 2000 Kia Sophia, which pretty much is a cherry with wheels. <laughs> a four-door sedan, and I like to ride low so you couldn't sit behind me. It was that small. Bought it with 50,000 miles, blew the engine up at 87,000. Don't talk to me about it. We'll talk about it later. Anyway. So I remember, I'm like really excited. I'm really excited to kind of go get my driver's test. And I'm pretty dialed where it's like, you know, we're doing the parallel park and I just whip it. We're good. Actually, a few weeks ago, me and my grandma were out and she forgot that I had a backup camera. So I'm backing in parallel park and I'm like, wow, this is so easy. My grandma's like, you're not even looking. I'm like, it's 2020, grandma. Every, most every car's got this now. But I remember I passed that and I'm on the road, and I'm like checking my blind spot, right? Some of you guys are like, ah, I don't really do that much, right? It's like check your blind spot, blinker, check the rear view, get over, right? So I'm doing great, and I'm, I, got, I got my test taken out at Lake Michigan College, and my mom was in the car. She's going to start laughing in a second. So I, I remember I, I'm doing really well, got on the highway, did everything. I'm on my way back to Lake Michigan College. I never really drove out there. And I'm going down a road, and I see a speed limit sign. Now, what you need to realize, and I had done my studying because my freedom was on the line, is that when you got to a, when you saw a speed limit sign, you had like 250 feet or something like that to where you had to be going that speed limit or else point. So you better believe I saw the speed limit sign. And I remember looking at it, looking at the speedometer, and I'm like checking to make sure I get right below that speed limit within 250 feet. So I'm just focused. I'm like speed limit, boom. And all of a sudden, some reason, some devilish reason, they stuck a stop sign behind that sucker. <laughs> and what I mean is like, who puts a speed limit sign and then 500 feet later, oh, stop sign, four way, right? Nobody. Come on, get it? Give me an amen. Jeez. <laughs> So I remember, I'm like going, and I'm once again, I am focused on getting down to the speed limit. I am focused on that. And all of a sudden, I hear my mom in the back. <laughs> Here's the thing you got to know about my mom. My mom isn't a backseat driver. She is the definition, epitome of a backseat driver. A, I mean, if I could drive my mom around with just blacked out goggles, I would have done it years ago. Right? And so I look up like, why is my mom hyperventilating? And all of a sudden, I see a stop sign, hammer my brakes, and I'm in the middle of a four-way dead stop, stop sign about 15 feet behind me. And the lady looks at me. I remember looking at her just like. <laughs> she goes, you know, I, I can't let you like, legally pass after you did that with me in the car. And my mom's just in the back seat just like. It's like real awkward. She's like, my mom's like, mm. settle down. 
And so I get, I like, I'm like, okay, long story short, I go back, I go back later and I got my license. Obviously I'm 28 now. I would hope I have my driver's license. Um, but what was funny though, is I was so focused on one sign that I wasn't focused on any other sign. And so something snuck right up while I was so focused on this one thing that I didn't pay attention to, that I didn't see coming. Man, and I, no offense, but I feel like this is how it is when following the Lord, right? We're so focused sometimes on this one thing, and he maybe sneaks something right up behind it. He maybe sneaks up a little season of whatever we're going to call 2020, where we came into the year feeling great, and we're halfway through the year wondering what in the heck's going on. But at the same time, I, I really feel like it, it's just so easy to pick and choose what signs we're going to obey within Scripture. It's so easy to just pick and choose. Oh, that one's a good one. I need to do that one and read another one and be like, well, it seems a little difficult. It's so easy to, to look and say, all right, God, I like that one, and just go through life where we just wonder why we're not really full of God, maybe because we're not actually walking in the fullness of what he's called us to do. See, I find it interesting because I feel like a lot of the times in my life, that's kind of how the Lord communicates with me the most, is when I feel like I'm mastering this side, he sneaks one up just to make sure that I'm listening and aware of him. And I want to encourage us today. I think that that's these, these principles, what we're going to talk about, the first, the last, and the most important, that's what we're talking about today because I feel like these are signs that we think we're obeying, but there's things that are slipped behind there that God's like, are you remembering this? Are you focused on this? Do you see this? Are you with me in this? Let's talk. All right, let's talk. The first words Jesus mentioned. Now, some of you guys maybe have a, an idea or you, or you think you kind of know, but here's the deal. We're not talking about Jesus' first ministry words. We're talking about Jesus as like a preteen words. And what I mean by that is th these words are actually assumed to kind of be spoken in between the ages of 10 and 14. And what's going on is Jesus' parents, they just got done with the Passover celebration. So they leave, and as they leave, they go a couple days and realize their kid isn't there. How many of y'all know there'd be some child protective services if that was Mary and Joseph today? They'd be showing up like, yo, we found your kid. You ain't seen it in four days. <laughs> How is that even? I feel like we read the Bible sometimes. We're like, wow, they missed Jesus. That's crazy. They missed it for three days. His parents are like, oh, wait, where's our child? It's your oldest firstborn child. It's not like you got 65 other kids. It's the one that was first. The oldest one. Also the son of God. Thank you, mother. It's like Mary and Joseph, I guarantee Mary and Joseph are just like, oh, my gosh. It's like, how do you even repent about that? It's like, God, we're sorry for losing your kid. <laughs> So, so here's the deal. Here's what happens, right? They're like, they like run back to the temple. They get there. They're like, Jesus. Naturally, Jesus is in the temple. Why? Because when he gets lost, he's running to the church. When we're lost, where are we running? Another sermon, another time. Anyway, they get to the temple. They're like, Jesus, what are you doing? What is going on with you, dude? We've been looking for you for, well, we didn't even notice you were gone for three days, but we were looking. <laughs> 
but we've been looking for you. All right, Jesus probably knew their thoughts. He's just like, I know you guys didn't even care. He's like, I've been having to eat the sacraments because I am the sacrament. Anyway, that's, that's not even, that's, that's not funny. That is heretic. Anyway, um, so here's the deal. Jesus, they're like, what are you doing? And this is Jesus' words. Listen to this. Luke, 10, Luke 2, 49. These are the very first words ever chronicled coming from Jesus' mouth in Scripture. And he said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Now, here's the deal. Many of you guys are like, wow, that's an interesting passage. Yeah, it is, because I'm going to give you about five other translations, and each one adds another layer to what he's trying to communicate. So let's read this one in the Amplified. And he said to them, why did you have to look for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Let's go to another one, ESV. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Passion's my personal favorite, and they're going to throw it up there right now. Um, but it says, Jesus said to them, why would you need to search for me? Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be here in my father's house, consumed with him? She, she took it a step further there. It's like, okay, we started out like, okay, I got to be about my father's business. Then it was like, actually, when you break that word down, it's like, you need to, I need to be in my father's house. And then I must be in my father's house. And then I must be in my father's house consumed with it. So what do I mean? There's multiple layers to what he's saying. But Jesus' first words ever recorded, I got to be in my father's house. I find it interesting, and I'm not going to get into this whole political craziness about what the church body and, you know, gathering and this and that. I'm not, I submit to our authorities. I'm sorry, you guys can hate me for that, whatever. But uh, I find it interesting, though, that Jesus' very first words point to the need that the Son of God needed to be in the Father's house. Now, when we ask ourselves, do we really feel like we need to be here? Do we really feel like we must be here? Let's take it a step further. Do we feel like we must be consumed with here? Most of us, we would say, okay, well, you're, you're up there paid to do that, called to do that. You can talk on a microphone, and it's semi-funny, and I get something out of it. Thank you, Rich. Right? It's like just so easy for us to just be like, okay, well, I can't be consumed with it. You know, I don't, do I really have to must be in it? I mean, when we look at the, the generational dynamics of really what even church attendance is today, and like I said, I'm not trying to get nitty and gritty. I'm literally taking God's words, very first words ever spoken. I got to be in my father's house. Can that be said of you? And here's the deal. For some of us, maybe we've been through seasons, we've been through times, and I'm not taking any of that away. But I feel like it's imperative for us to realize the importance of being connected to the body, the importance of being stewarded, the importance of, of pursuing not just the work of the ministry, but the work of what your role is within the church. And some of us were like, okay, well, that's easy for you to say because you're almost preaching your own sermon because you work here. And I can tell you this, the, more, the, the, the longer I've been here, the harder and harder it is for this principle to continue to be intertwined. Because believe it or not, 
There are things about the church that are pretty hard to fathom, rationalize, work out. I mean, but it's always encouraging when I see these first words. The importance of this message. You know, we can get into the argument of, oh, the church isn't the body, or the church isn't the building, it's the body, or I am the church. I, here's the deal. All that to say, that might be true, but I can point out Jesus' first words, I must be in my Father's house. And really, that's all I'm trying to do today, is talk about his first, his last, and his self-proclaimed most important. Because for some of us, it's just so easy to focus on the speed limit sign and forget that there's a sign behind it. And maybe that sign's telling us to stop. Maybe that sign's telling us to yield. Gosh, these are all really good. <laughs> maybe that sign is just telling us, hey, there's, there's road work, there's trouble up ahead, whatever that is. But it's your choice how you're going to handle it. It's your choice if this is actually something you want to live out. It's just his first words. Second ones, right? First words, last words. Now, many of us, we maybe have heard his last words or we think or we know his last words, but I'm going to try and back, uh, unpack it a little bit um, differently. Jesus' last words are what we would kind of characterize as, uh, you know, we're a non-denominational church, but uh, evangelical Christians kind of call the Great Commission. And actually, that term kind of came about a long time after his death. But this is something where essentially it's talked about in Matthew, it's talked about in Mark, and it's talked about in uh, the book of Acts chapter 1. So there's three different references to the Great Commission, and there's a bunch of different kind of um, viewpoints on it. But I just want to talk about it on the basis of um, his last words, and what I mean is last words but new messages. Because what you see in the Great Commission is there's things that he talks about he's already talked about, but there's things in the Great Commission he talks about that nobody's ever heard before. And people are like, wait, did he just really say that, right? So let's read it. It's in, we're going to read the Matthew 28 version. It's in six, verse 16 to 20. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. How many of y'all know you like see the dude and he's like ministering with nail holes in his hands, right? You're like, I don't know if I believe that's real. I would love to know who those people were when I get there. Like Jesus, point them out. Who were those people that was hating on you? It says this though, listen. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded. And behold, I am with you always even to the end of the age. Now, I want to I quickly kind of break down this passage so we can kind of get to his, great, his, his greatest words. Now, what we need to realize is that first portion of Scripture, right, where he says, uh, his first portion, it says this, all authority on earth and in heaven has been given to me. He's already said that before. He's already said that. So we don't we're not going to focus on that point of emphasis because Jesus is reiterating a phrase that he says he has all authority in heaven and on earth so that one's we're not focusing on that right now what we're focusing on is last words and new thoughts and this new thought this is the one we need to focus on great commission it says this right all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me go therefore and make disciples of all nations hold up Jesus up to this time, you have to realize there is no Gentile ministry. 
Now, when you read the term Gentile in Scripture, essentially it means unreached, unchurched, non-Jewish cultured people. So when Jesus says, hey, go into all the world and make disciples, all he's ever, all his disciples have ever really known is Jewish ministry. All they've ever really known is their Jerusalem, Galilee, you know, that little area. And that window, that little area is not big. It's not big at all. And so he looks at him and he says, hey, guys, we're going into all the world. Now, all his disciples, I guarantee, start looking at each other like, what? All the, does he mean like A-L-L? All of it? Does he realize how big this mug is? And then actually, and some of us, you guys go, okay, well, what do you mean? So he actually defines what that is. Make disciples. Baptize. Teach them to observe my commandments. Give them the Holy Spirit. But that thought, make disciples everywhere, has not been uttered up to this point in Scripture. It hasn't. So then... This passage, he says this at the very end, and that's what I want you guys. There's two key elements of the Great Commission that Jesus has not uttered up to this point. The first one is make disciples in all the world, and the second one is the very ending in verse 20. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I love this one because we as Christians, we go, oh, that's really good. But in Mark, it actually says that when he finished saying that, he floats up. He's gone. He gets taken up. How many of you guys know, if the last word somebody says is, hey, I'm going to be with you always, we'd all be like, okay, wait a second. Now, we're talking like the literal translation of always? Are we talking about like the, the personal translation of always? Are we talking about like you're always there because that's the only definition of always I know? This is like, oh, go make disciples everywhere. I know we've never done that before, but you can handle it. Oh, and I'm with you always, but I'm about to float up right in front of you. Peace out, always. Right? How many of you guys know? It's easy to read the Great Commission and be like, okay, go into all the world, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, observe everything that I've commanded. All right, he's with me. Okay, good, God. But these thoughts aren't just like, oh, those are great thoughts. These are like groundbreaking thoughts to his followers then. And so when I ask you the question, you know, before you can even disciple others, you have to be a disciple. So when we look at his first words, I need to be in my father's house. We look at his second words, go into all the world. How do we measure ourselves? Now, all the world is your world. I can't go into your world for you and reach your world. I mean, if I had enough time, maybe, but I won't. I'm sorry, I don't got enough time. I can go into my world. I can go into my open doors. I can go into my places that I go, and I will. But at the same time, when we ask ourselves the question, have I gone into all the world? Have I been a disciple so I can disciple? Man, and like I said, I feel like I run into conversations with believers all the time where we wonder why maybe it's stale. We wonder why it just doesn't mean anything, or it doesn't, we don't feel anything, or it's not really, it just feels hard. It's because a lot of the times what we do is we cherry pick the things we want to do out of the Bible and leave the things that are difficult in the Bible for the people who are going to preach about it. 
And I want to encourage you, when Jesus is floating up into the clouds right before that and saying, go into all the world, be a disciple and make disciples, that wasn't just for his followers. Remember what it said? It said there were people in the crowd that were doubting him, that were literally listening to the message and going, ah, this isn't real, this, isn't, this is fake, I don't, nobody's going to do this. And Jesus is preaching to them. See, a lot of us, we read the Great Commission and go, oh, he's talking to the 12 disciples. They lived three years with him. It's really easy for them to do it. They saw him do all the crazy stuff. And Jesus is like, no, I'm talking to my doubters. I'm talking to my disciples. I'm talking to anybody walking by on the hillside that day. Go into all the world. Make disciples. And don't worry, I'm with you. See, if we ask ourselves the question, do we have a disciplined learning lifestyle? Not about the things that will make us money, not about the things that we think will lead to happiness, but the things that are kingdom-oriented that God promises will yield reward for our souls. Are we disciplined to produce and to follow in those things? Are we consistent in discipling other people? Here's the big thing. If you're going into all the world, you're not looking for people who look like you, talk like you, dress like you. It's all the world. I feel like this is what's become so short-sighted in the church today is what we do is we think that discipling is defined by getting people around us who think like us, talk like us, have our partisan views, have our same skin color, have our same socioeconomic class, have our same background, have our same upbringing, and then we all disciple each other and we all just become the embodiment of what we already were. The good thing about going into all the world is the transformation of that world and the transformation of yours also. Because you, don't, you can't just go into the all the world with just preconceived idea of what everything is supposed to look like. Where's faith within that? How can you go into all the world convinced that your world is the reality everybody should live? That seems a little too concrete for Hebrews 11, one faith, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things we can't see. So we're hoping for something we can't see and trying to give it to people. I would say that seems a little crazy. When we go into all the world to make disciples, we go in by using this last greatest commandment. First words, you must find me in my father's house. Second words, go into all the world and I'm with you always. And the greatest commandments, Matthew 22, 34 through verse 30. Now this is a self-proclaimed. They asked him, what is the greatest thing, the greatest command, the greatest saying, the greatest thing you can give us? This is huge insight. Let's read verse 36, Matthew 22, verse 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. I want to focus on this for a, for a brief moment. Now, some of us, I, I have a bone to pick with the Lord sometimes. My bone to pick is this. I say, God, why couldn't you have been a little bit more descriptive? 
Why couldn't you have given me a little bit more? How many of you guys know? We get, I helped a buddy. He might be watching this. I helped a buddy who went to church here build a basketball hoop in his driveway for four hours. There was 86 steps. And God's given us commands. And there ain't no steps. There ain't no manual. There's like, just follow me and pursue my spirit. Just love your neighbor. Just love me. Right? I got a bone to pick, God. Why didn't you give me more? Why isn't there more steps? Why is it there? Because, man, as a Christian, it is so easy to hear that and be like, okay, I'm going to love my neighbor. Okay, God, whew, I got it locked in. I'm going to love you too. It is so easy to almost hear and process and study these statements and not realize the gravity and the magnitude of what Jesus is saying. The gravity and the magnitude is this. I think we're looking at this passage of Scripture all wrong. I'm not just proposing this. I'm straight up saying this. I think we as a church have looked, not just us, but the culture by and large have looked at this passage and this phrase as for so long the wrong way. You know what the right way is? When Jesus says this, he goes, you know what? This is going to be so hard for your world that it will take you a lifetime to be able to do it. See, we're looking for steps, and God's saying, I'm telling you, this is going to be so hard for you to grasp. This is going to be so hard for you to fathom that I can't even bring things behind it because for you to focus on this will take everything within you. It will be so hard to love those who have an opinion different than you. It will be so hard to love those who wear a mask. It'll be so hard to love those who don't wear a mask. It'll be so hard to love those who are a Democrat. It'll be so hard to love those who are Republican. It'll be so hard to love those who have a different background, different upbringing, different skin color. Oh, wait, God, I'm doing these. Give me more steps. This is the hardest step. This is the only step. Thank you, Mom. It's the greatest step. See, Jesus didn't just say, hey, go love your neighbor. And we could wake up after a week of trying to do it and say, man, I really love him today. He didn't say, okay, go love God. And we just wake up a couple weeks later after reading our Bible and doing stuff and say, man, I love God. But he said these things. So that when our flesh wants to hate our neighbor, we say, I remember what I'm commanded. When our flesh says, I don't really want to do what God called me to do because this is difficult. This is hard. We remember and go, but man, I know I'm called to love God. See, for so long, we've looked at this greatest message thing with just this like ear of, okay, God, yeah, I do those things. But the reason God didn't give steps to this is because it's such a massive step for mankind that most of us get lost along the way and have to get reminded and recentered on how important it is. This isn't something I'm just talking about for you. This is me. See, we could sit here and say, I love my neighbor all day long, but in the back of our mind, get around people who we don't want to talk to, who we don't want to associate with, or every time we see them post something, go, they're a moron. But God, I love you. Ooh, I love you, God. I'm sorry, but in our world today, that is starving for an antidote, starving for a cure of what this 
our culture has become, I pray that we realize that the greatest message is not just relevant, it is pertinent, it is not just important, it is mandatory for the church today. We have to be a people who not just sit here and say, God, I love my neighbor, but boy, they don't agree with me, so I don't. But one who says, Father, if the pursuit of my life is the greatest commandment and you didn't give steps, it's because you knew it was going to be so difficult that it might take a lifetime to do it. But I sign up again and again and again and again and again. The last, the first, the greatest commandments I pray today were challenged. I pray today we're stirred. And I pray we realize the importance of our role within all of those. Let's all stand to our feet.